RPS powered by Set. Welcome to the weekly review on RPS, the radio show where two grown men and a gifted young mind discuss some of the hottest and most relevant issues in pop culture. This week we're talking newcomers in the class of 2020. The ever so curious Marva Iverdu will help old Ben and old me keep up with what the kids are listening to nowadays, bringing us her own personal selection of young emerging talent we can't afford to miss out on. We'll delve a little bit deeper into our album of 2 weeks ago, speaking to two of the key players on Fleet Fox's magnificent shore. Basque Grammy Award winning sound engineer Beatriz Artola and relative newcomer Yuade Akere were gracious enough to join me on the Zoom line. And we finally have in our grasp Fake It Flowers, the debut album from one of the most talked about young talents in the British music industry who we've been hearing about since last year, Bieber Dooby. To my left, my trusty wise squire Ben Cardew the 3rd, Ben Badooby. <laughs> to my right, the wonderful Marvai Verdu. Hi. And behind the screen, Rob the Roman, charging against anyone who dares to be conquered by his wonderful technical talents. And here are a few strums from the brilliantly named Fun to Pronounce Bibidoobie. Doobie, isn't it beautiful? Worth it, and that was very much worth it, was it not? So we're really pleased that we get to speak about her this week because we're looking at young talent. And I don't think there's um, much talent that could be more young and more uh, thrilling than Biba Doobie, um, and kind of appeals to us old people as well. Brilliant, sounds a bit like the Breeders and things like that, which which is quite uh, lovely. And people are getting very very excited about her. And it's been a while, hasn't it, since like. There was someone so young and guitar friendly people getting excited about wasn't there? Who can I, who else can you think of? She reminds me a lot of Clairo, um Snail Mail, a lot of the young solo bedroom pop talent that we've been hearing for the last couple of 3 years but she does have an even stronger take on that 90s nostalgic sound that might reminisce memory elicit memories of Veruca Salt, Juliana Hatfield 3, Liz Fair. I don't know there there weren't that many that's that's what I miss of the 90s. You know, you there were probably about 10 of those artists, those kind of artists that you could control, you know, you could keep up with. Now there's just so many. My wife uh, came into the bedroom while I was listening to Bieber Doobie and she doesn't like a lot of my music. She was like, "Oh yeah, this I really like. This is my music. You can keep on listening to this." But she doesn't like Ryan Trenner? No, no. <laughs> she doesn't like Russian techno. She's not a fan. But she like this. So that's a victory for Bieber Doobie. Well, uh I must say, I I I think there's a lot of quality and I think she's a really gifted songwriter and I think that she is going to evolve into greater things i uh, i i liked m- the sound of her eps and when she was even more bedroomy when she when she really did sound lo-fi because i think that's what she's gone for she she's always citing pavement elliot smith daniel johnston as her main influences and this album is a little bit more polished and i think it sacrifices a little bit of the charm the lo-fi charm that she had 
and it makes it makes it sound a bit too teeny for my taste. But that's not a bad thing. We have to remember we are four teens here. We love teens. We love teenagers. Um, but I agree that she has lost this kind of thing that was very hers, that she was like this lo-fi, um, claro, webcam era in her bedroom sing singing Pretty Girls. Um, but I don't think she has lost it, but she has won something new. That it's this feeling that you say it's more polished, but also this teenage 90, 90s rom-com thing I, I was listening to it and I was like I have to watch 10 things I hate about you yeah. I have to watch this movie now yeah. because this is, is what is playing in Julia Sting's character um, mp3 player because it really really feels like she, like this like a rom-com played either by Lindsay Lohan in Freaky Friday or 10 things I hate about you and and I love it I, I want this to take me back to the best movies ever made the 90s rom-coms I think also to be fair like you can't sort of say she had her bedroom pavement phase because they're kind of different things she had like a bedroom phase and then she had a sort of more uh, noisy rock phase and now she's moved on to another phase and I'm happy with it you know because it's like this is this is like a thing to do with your debut album someone gives you a bit of money to record and you go out and do it and I think like um, some of the songs uh, I'm trying to think of a good example they've got lovely strings on them and you think oh they've actually put some sort of um, put some sort of money with this like Sorry for example that song you know it's not bedroom pop it, well, I mean it starts off quite bedroom but then it, it goes like and it's got these strings sort of going around I'm really quite up for it it reminds me again of like when indie bands in the 90s got on major labels and they got a bit of recording budget and they made these rather beautiful things I don't want her just to sort of stick in the bedroom doing lo-fi acoustic stuff even though she does it very well so I'm very much on board and I disagree thing is I'm I'm a I'm very fond of Sandy Alex G I think now he's only called Alex G and he doesn't sound teenager he does sound like an Elliot Smith so obviously me in my 40s I'm <laughs> I'm comfortable listening to that whereas this album it makes me cringe a little bit because my girlfriend was like, well, aren't you a bit old to be listening to this? It's almost like you're listening to an Avril Lavigne album, which I have nothing against. I think she was a skater boy. She said, see you later, boy, or whatever. One of the best lyrics ever written. <laughs> I agree. Totally agree. <laughs> and I love those kind of films you're alluding to, Mar, uh, Mean Girls, which we didn't get to talk about last week. Sadly. By the way, had a reunion and I, I thought it was an exciting moment. So all throughout this album, I could see high school corridors. I could see girls wearing baggy corduroy trousers. In fact, I was quite, um, I, I empathized with her because apparently she was uh, very heavily influenced all throughout her musical lyrics or many of her songs allude to the fact that she was, she wasn't bullied in the, that, pra that, that old girls Catholic school she went to, but she, apparently they'd set up a WhatsApp group to mock the things that because she was already starting to play music in high school and there was like some mean girls who mm. were out to get her shall we say and like bitching about her on a private whatsapp group which can be a terribly horrible thing especially when you know she she's half filipino so she was the only girl who looked like her in that school i could imagine bullying or made to feel different situations i empathize with that and uh, that's why I find it very hard to sort of say anything bad about this album because I don't want her to feel bad if she ever came across this podcast. But um, as I say, she was with her EPs, she was getting to that sort of Alex G kind of phase or a Clyro or Snail May kind of world. But this, 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 this clean production, I could feel the managers having a bit of an influence on this. I don't know. 
Uh, see, I, I disagree. There's already Clara already exists, Alex G already exists. So why not have? I, in fact, it's been a long time since there was like a big guitar band that sounded like this. That sounded like they could be commercial. That they'd want to play it on the radio. And also, if I might say, you you talk about her being bullied, which is obviously a, a terrible thing. But one thing I really like about this album is it's quite sweet in many ways, but it's got a lot of bite. Like a song like Further Away. Mm. I was thinking, oh, this sounds a lot like The Sundays. But then there's a look like Who's Laughing Now, which is really good. It's like it, it, there's like a subtle anger and something like Diet Red, Kiss My Ass, You Don't Know Jack. And it's not like the sort of straight up anger of, you know, you might get from like a UK drill track or something like that. <laughs> but it's sort of quite subtle anger. And I really like it. And one thing, again, she said about the album was basically this was um, her way. It was basically her way of saying things to people that she couldn't say to people in in everyday life, and she actually said it in her music. Um, In fact, she said, the third song is, I realised the theme was everything I was supposed to tell someone, but couldn't. And it's incredibly honest, this album. That's why, again, it breaks through that that sort of shiny popness, which actually I quite like. But you know, like, pop songs these days, written by, like, 20 people. And, you know, you get them all in a room, and they're throwing together phrases. And they make brilliant things, but often... You know, it's not like I'm sad, therefore I'm going to write a song. It's like we've got a committee of people here, we're going to write a song. And they do great things. But this, genuinely, I get the feeling like this is how I'm feeling. I'm going to write this song right now. And I find that very, very refreshing. Also, I really, because I really want to shout out Coffee. Because you know how she came to fame, right? The TikTok thing. Exactly. Coffee, which was the very first song she ever wrote. And you listen to it, and it's got an incredible uh, honesty for that. It's the kind of thing, like, it makes you think that must be easy, because you just think how you feel, and then you sing it. But that's incredibly difficult, and she does that. Um, and the fact that was then picked up by Powfu and made into this big TikTok uh, sensation, you can sort of see why, because, you again, even if it's uh, sampled and sped up and put in a rather rubbish beat, I still think that, that kind of honest honesty and believability comes through. Yeah, I did like the Pao Fu version. It, 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 there's, there's a certain artistic element to it, just like there is to seeing a film like uh, 10, Things I, 10 Things I Hate About You, is yeah. it? Heath Ledger, RIP. But, I mean, Ben, I must say, you know, on the, on the press release, she's going on record saying, it's a record for girls to cry to and dance to and get angry to. It's all about, like, how annoying it is to be a girl. And I think it's very good for men like us to peer into see the, the, the universe of a girl in her, in her teenage room and stuff. Although it does make me feel a little bit inappropriate. <laughs> See, I had very—I used to have this discussion um, with my wife, who's a big, big fan of PJ Harvey, right? And I'm also a big, big fan of PJ Harvey. And she used to say, uh, "Apologies if I'm paraphrasing. She doesn't listen anyway." But um, uh, she used to say, "As a woman, I sort of get PJ Harvey more more than you do." And I used to say, well, I don't know, I really, really get PJ Harvey. And then occasionally I'd get Arsia, but well, as a man, I get Nirvana more than you do. And she didn't like that at all. But I don't know, I, I, I'm never quite sure if that is, is, a, is a thing or not, because it would be hard. Like, I, I get that she says it's about being a young woman, but, you know, I felt sad. I felt betrayed. I felt angry. All of that kind of comes across. But then again, I, I, can't, speak as, I can't speak as a young woman. Ma, what are you I. I don't think you have to feel exactly like what the writer or singer is 
singing about, but you get the same emotion. Maybe you're 40 and you're not a teenage girl, but you you can you can like it too. Like I can listen to old men singing about I don't know something that it's not relatable to me, like a divorce or something. But I can enjoy <laughs> their music because somehow they they connect. I connect with the feeling through other experiences, or I just like how it sounds. I think. You see, I think this album, I've got a theory of this album. Do you want to hear it? Please do. Right. It appeals to young people because it's TikTok friendly. It appeals to adolescents because it's very angsty and believable. And it appeals to older people of, of our age, Johan, <laughs> because it references the 90s. It's the perfect yeah. guitar pop album. For that I, th- I thought you would like it because it would get you the kind of nostalgia I had about these movies. And it's, it sounds exactly like the soundtrack of these amazing movies made in the 90s. And I was like, you can relate now because she is a 20-year-old today and, and she sings about her stuff and, and she is cool now. But you can also relate because it, it reminiscent uh, like this 90s essence. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's cool to, I don't know, she's bringing it back kind of like she's not the only one but it's cool even if you're older than 19 or 16 well it's it's like when you watched uh, Woody Allen's Annie, Annie Hall when you were a teenager and you were like into going to see arty films it's like yeah I really love Annie Hall but what you don't really understand Annie Hall until you turn 40 and you understand what divorces are and what they can become and what how it can ruin your life and stuff it's like oh now this is a totally different film I can't say the same for going back to reliving you know my teenage boy experience even though I could maybe feel the frustrations of a heartbreak or that kind of thing, I can relate to a little bit of that. But there's, it just seems like it's very, tar- it's targeted to like she had she had her audience in mind, and it leaves me out. I uh, I disagree. I don't think she did have an audience in mind. I think she literally just wrote songs from her own experience, and this was how they came out. I mean, for example, there was a really interesting. Um, story about worth it. So she writes from her own experience, and um, the the man who makes her videos is also her boyfriend. Yes, or her boyfriend, Soren Harrison, who on the album is uh, homage. Does Horan Sarenson? Oh, how clever! Oh, so I'd love to know this. Yeah, he's got an Instagram account and everything. I found him. Oh so she God. she wrote the song Worth It, which is like one of the biggest songs, uh, best songs on the album, and it's about her own romantic infidelities. And uh, so Harrison wasn't exactly keen on doing a video for it because you know this is a song basically about his girlfriend's romantic in, in infidelities mm. and he did it in the end but he did it in this really really personal way like putting loads of like polaroids and certain pieces of clothing in into the video that was apparently so personal that when b then saw it she was like what what on earth is this but, but they got there in the end and that's that's incredible putting your life open like that and I also particularly it. if she had bad experiences you know with with people sort of taking the piss out of her i love the fact she's not let that get to her and she's kind of still like i'm gonna write about this this is my life i think it's a very strong thing to do and also if i may um the songwriting is brilliant some of the some of the lyrics can i quote you some lyrics i really like these this is from the song horan saracen yes saracen you are the smell of pavement after the rain you are the last empty seat on a train 
Uh, yes, I had I had a little note on that. It's like I don't know if I'd like to be complimented by saying I smell like the the the, the street the pavement after there's been a rain. Obviously, is it a little sort of homage to pavement the band? I mean, I live near the Gothic Quarter in Barcelona, and after it rains, it stinks of like a rotten latrine. But maybe she's just being honest, or maybe it's a way of saying, okay, you are not the best, but I like the feeling of you. No, but like, well, I think it's it's a very romantic image, isn't it? If, as long as you don't think about it too much. That is true. You know, be, the last seat on an empty... Hang on, the last seat... The, the last empty seat on a empty train. Empty seat on a train. So I'm seeing a train in London full of like different kinds of people. There's that empty seat that usually you have to reserve for someone who... Yeah, right. Okay. I can see the poetry. She is poetic. She's a... Look, if she was my housemate, my flatmate, my daughter, my sister, or whatever, I would swear that she is the greatest singer, uh, songwriter alive right now. But right now, I'm more in the mood for Enya, Hall & Oates, Julio Iglesias. It's just it's just me. It's my own personal thing. Sorry, Biba Doobie. No shade. I think it's a great album. It's just not for me right now. All right. Well, I loved it. Ma? I love it. And now more because I know the gossip behind it. That's two versus one. Right, we'll have a little listen. This is Care by Biba Doobie. It's been a while since I've talked about it Maybe it's time to That's Care by Bibi Doobie. And yes, we're only playing a short bit. That's because you can go and listen to it on streaming services. Um, and it, the f- album is out Friday, I think. So day after you're listening to this, hopefully. Also, because we've got Mara to present her guide to new music. Because we're looking at young people's music. And sadly, Johan and I don't quite qualify for that. Apparently, young people aren't into Siberian techno. I don't know. And they don't really dig Julio Iglesias or any of those kind of male chauvinistic romantic balladeers, do they? How dare they? <laughs> Mar, you've brought us crema fina, as I'd say in Spanish. <laughs> a lot of fine cream passed through a sieve to make some fine puree. Tell us, what yeah. have you brought? Um, I don't know if it's crema fina or what is it, because I just made it with my own opinions, totally, completely biased, unashamedly, super not knowledgeable about music, but I came up with a list that I think that are the hottest new artists of 2020, and I have my reasons. Not good criteria, but I have reasons that I can back up. (laughs) That maybe if you don't agree, I can just try to make my point. Okay, first off, there's a little disclaimer that this list is basically full of pop artists and pop songwriters. And I suspect they're very good-looking pop artists. They're all very look good-looking good and they're all in their 20s. So they're also young, Gen okay. Z. So, and they are all very talented as well, that's, that's for sure. But there's lots of talented people in this world, um, but you have to attract, attract an audience and I think um, this is what they're... this is why they're going to be big because... Uh, you have to have something at- attracting to your persona and these four four five people have it for sure uh-huh i i, I presume that they have a very strong online presence as well as musicianship yeah you're c- completely right it's like you can't make it nowadays if you're not a bit of an influencer on social media is this the case mm. well hang on what about that band salt everyone's talking about that has absolutely nothing on social media or just like very basic, but no one knows who they are. Which one? Salt. S-A-U-L-T. 
Loads of people. Oh, check them out. Oh, I see. I haven't even heard. Okay, damn it. I'm finding out. I'm taking notes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or what was it? Black Midi. Weren't they kind of against being on social media and stuff? I don't know. Black on Speedy Wonderground. Anyway. Yes. Anyway, yeah. To Colin. begin with, and proving your point that you have to have a, an online persona to make it big, we have first runner-up, well, not runner-up, first on the list, Conan Gray. Conan Gray, you may might not know about him because he is the newcomer. Um, was a lifestyle YouTuber, so he had an, an already a presence on the internet mm. back in 2014. So he uploaded, he was a, a normal blogger, his day-to-day -day life, his teenage stuff, jokes, blah, blah, blah. And eventually he started to feel more comfortable and started posting covers of him singing. And later he made like an original song just by him producing and making noises in his house and then putting all together on guitar band or whatever mm -hmm. the Apple program is and he made a song and it, it went pretty good. Flash forward to now he is a full-blown pop star, he has his first debut album with a big record label and the album is titled Kid Crow and it's really really good and his story is I think it's a success story because I feel like he's um, the 2.0 Troy Sivan, who was also a YouTuber, and now people only know him as a pop star, as a big um, pop star that's going to the Met Gala and living his lavish life in whatever he is in mm. Hollywood, Australia, or whatever. Okay, but for us boomers, what what's his style? <laughs> okay, so... Musical style. Kid Crow, the album and all his singles and blah, 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 is a sad pop album like um oh. not bedroom pop but kind of a uh, yeah sweet uh, you you relate because you're a teen and you're sad and and i just think this uh, conan gray is actually really talented and he gets uh, music and not like i do <laughs> he understands what people want to hear and he and he knows his voice and his sound and and it it's really i just love the album and the best piece of cake of the album is the single called Heather which by now has more than 200 million streams on Spotify so it's I'm not the only one thinking that it's the best on the album um, and it's so good you know your song is so good and you're so good at what you're doing when the name of your song becomes a, a term in popular language so Heather, the, the song, is about how, well, Conan talks about his life, obviously, and how he had a crush in high school, and, and this crush was not corresponded, so he was in love with a girl in his high school called Heather. And he's not mad at, at him that he's not into him, because he gets it. He's like, okay, Heather is so cool, she is so nice, she's so pretty, um, I, I just want to be her, but I don't hate her. So people are now using the term Heather to to as a thing, as a, this kind of girl, because I, I feel like everyone gets what who the Heather is. Like you can say, oh, I wish I, I can say I wish I was the Heather of my high school, but I, I was not on my time. Wait, wait, Heather is the one that you look up to, but pasa de ti that doesn't, but ignore not not that she ignores you, but she doesn't she's, have eyes for you. I get she she's she's like you really fancy her. And she doesn't fancy you, but she's nice about it, right? Kind of? No, because you look oh. at Heather like the this girl is so nice, so cool. Everyone gets on, uh, is on good terms with her. She's friends with everyone. She's also you cannot hate her because 
she's, she's not, not a, only she's pretty. not a bad bitch she's not exactly. um, she's not only pretty, but George. she's also a very good person and you can be friends with her she's she has the whole package and everyone's in love with her I and mean, she's not that she's she says no to guys and and that's her thing but the her thing is being a nice person and really likable so, so she so that would be a heather a heather like like in in on online like if you're a karen what's a karen a karen is like the, the like a soccer mother no the yeah, one who exactly. calls the police if you're black and <laughs> basically <the> bl- <laughs> a republican loitering some support should we have a little bit of heather yes a little yes. bit of heather right this is conan gray with heather Oh my god, this is the saddest strumming I've ever heard in my life. This is even sadder than Elliot Smith. Pass me the tissues. Yeah, it's so sad. I have another one, another 20 years, something old, but he will not make you cry, or at least not in the way Conan Gray will. Um, he is also on this list, even if he's also a guy who's 20-something-year-old in the United States, blah, 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 and making pop from his bedroom or his very low-quality studio. Um, but I think <laughs> he is important because he fulfills another aspect of pop when Conan Gray is the mm, pop prince for sad teenagers and uh, the sweeter the sweet face of pop role model who is the, the guy I'm talking about who's actually called um, Tucker Pillsbury um, is more of the heartbreaker but like he's stylish he has these vintage looking clothes that are so cool he skates or he looks like he does he's funny he wears beanies you if you were at, if I was <laughs> I'm a teenager, wearing a beanie am I uh, do I fall into that category no. <laughs> maybe it's, uh, no. if you were a teenager you would be the role uh, model oh. <laughs> oh, don't make me cry like the song, the song before okay um, Tucker. like to me he's the perfect heartbreaker character for 2020 in 2010 we had Justin Bieber and he fulfilled the kind of heartbreaker we were looking for in 2010 but um, Tucker fulfills what we look for in 2020 in the heartbreaker like he's not a, a an idiot he's a cool indie skater I don't know I'm enough of his looks we get it he's cool he doesn't capitalize the letters on his songs you know the kind of cool he is so no capital letters <laughs> no capital letters we're young okay we're, uh, <laughs> let's let's listen to a little bit of role model to get to grasp his sound This song we were listening to, uh, he doesn't have an album, but he has quite a few singles. And I think this song proves my point as he's very... Um, we need him in pop culture and we need, teenagers need him because this song was de- dedicated to Emma Chamberlain, who is the id girl of um, Gen Z. We millennials had Alex Turner and Alexa Chang mm-hmm. and they made us fall in love and they made us live the fantasy. And now we have role model and Emma Chamberlain. And he wrote Blind about her, which is something you want to know to live the fantasy of this love story between these two very cool people that you will never live up to be. 
And oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it, it just you just live through through their pictures. And he said about blind, which I think is really, really, really interesting. Um, blind for Emma. I wrote this song before I even met the person it's about. It's that feeling of falling for someone over the internet and telling yourself they're perfect for you without even knowing their full name. It's like writing a song about someone's Instagram profile as sad as that may seem. Isn't that a bit stalky? Anyway, who, uh, <laughs> uh, next artist, next artist. Who are Chloe and Halle? Chloe and Halle are, to me, the m- most important people on on the planet. And I don't know why, why they're not the, the most famous mm, celebrated artists there are. And I, that's why they're on the list, because uh, it's mind-blowing that they're this talented, these, mm, they have these voices, they, ha- they put out these performances, and they are still a little bit unknown. Uh, and I'm not the only one seeing this, because they have the Beyoncé stamp of approval. They are on her management team, and they toured with her. So everyone... Everyone, me and Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> you and Beyonce, the people who count. Chloe and Halle um, are the best, and they have this aura and this kind of um, duo din- dynamic that I feel like if we lived in a parallel universe where Solange and Beyonce were a duo, they would sound just like Chloe and Halle, who are also sisters. I forgot to mention that. Oh, okay. Um, so. Chloe has uh, this more intense, a little bit more Beyonce, more pop, more not aggressive, but she's more out there. And Halle has this angel voice, chilled, more indie vibe, just like Solange. So they make the perfect duo, and they have a, an amazing album that's their actually second album called um, Ungodly Hour, and and it's amazing. I think everyone should listen to it. Um, their voices are incredible, and. If that's not a good reason enough, you have to watch their performances in the BMAs, in the GLAAD Awards, in the Today Show, and Jimmy Kimmel, you will be mind-blown. Let's listen to these. Thank you so much, Mar. Hey Siri, play Radio Primavera Sound. Okay, check it out. RPS, powered by SAT. On the 22nd of September 2020, Fleet Foxes unexpectedly dropped what has become one of the year's most celebrated records, given its scope and optimism during times of global uncertainty and general despair. Recorded before and during the COVID pandemic, chief songwriter Robin Pecknell traveled the world accompanied by Spanish Grammy Award-winning sound engineer and mixer Beatriz Artola to lay down the tracks in some of the lushest-sounding studios money could afford. We managed to talk to Beatriz over the Zoom line to share her experience working on shore. Caixa Beatriz, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Johan? Very well, very well. It's such an honor to speak to one of the person people responsible for one of my favorite albums of the year. Uh, congratulations on your work on Shore by the Fleet Foxes. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy you liked it. A lot of this record, it's, it's traveled all over the world, right? The, the gestation of it. Paris, mm-hmm. New York, Los Angeles, uh, where else? 
Okay, so we started recording in upstate New York in the middle of nowhere. Um, from there, we went to Paris, then we went to LA, then we came back to New York. And then we, within New York, we were um, at the Diamond Mine, which is in Long Island City in Queens. And we were also at Electro Lady, which is in Greenwich Village. Um, that's where actually Robin and I met uh, a few years ago. Um, but that's the recording process. Prior to that, Robin was writing... Uh, in different places. I know he did some writing in Portugal. How mm -hmm. different a person was he working on shore from your point of view? Um, I mean, there were different stages in shore where I feel like a lot, of, a lot of his stress went away when he came up with the lyrics. Uh, he usually writes lyrics last. Um, And that's quite stressful for him, I feel, um, because he wants them to be really good, obviously. Uh, so once he cracked the lyrics, I feel like that's when he started really having fun. And that was, that was um, towards the, around the lockdown. Um, it's not that he was not having fun before, like we did have a lot of fun before, but that's kind of like, I think when he was like, okay, now I know what this is. And yeah, it was just a matter of execution. Well, I, I imagine as a mixing engineer, a lot of the day is spent looking at the computer screen. And once you get in the zone of concentration, it doesn't really matter where you are. Is that so? Is it the same recording in Paris to say on some beautiful resorts in some paradise island or something like that? If you've ever been? Uh, it is different. Um, in terms of recording, um, I mean, it's, it, it's very different to mixing. I, I prefer mixing in a room that I know. Um, actually some of the mixing for this album happened in my studio where I mixed most of the records that I mix. Um, and then once I had a first pass for the whole album, then we went back because we needed to still do some recording and I finished the mixes elsewhere. In terms of recording, I think it's helpful to go to different places because, um, the reason Robin chose the studios we went to was, uh, because of their gear and because of the instruments that they have. So basically, I can totally hear the things that are from different studios. Like, oh, that's the piano from this place, which sounds completely different to the piano from this other place. And the rooms sound completely different to each other. Um, so I think it was very beneficial for the record that we moved around. Yeah, he's, he's, he said that recording at Les Studios Saint-Germain in Paris was like a personal whim. What was it about that studio that he wanted to record there? Um, I think he wanted to be in Paris. I think it was just like a, something that had been on his mind for a little bit, uh, doing some recording there. I'm never going to say no to that because I love Paris. So I was like, yay. <laughs> um, but um, it's, a, it's a really, really nice studio. And they do have, like, the mic collection is really, really nice. Um, the... They have like a lot of like really old acoustic little pianos that sound kind of weird that were really nice. Um, their amp collection is really nice. So we did get some cool sounds there for sure. What about Aaron Desner's Long Pond Studio? Is that like a fantasy? Because I've seen the pictures and it's like, wow, if you're into that American iconography of wooden cabins and a pond and barbecue and I don't know, no, the, the Americana feel. Is it like that, really? It is like that. But I mean, that's upstate New York. Like, that's, that is what it's like. Um, 
that was when we started recording. I think it was a really good studio to start recording at because there's no separation between the control room and the live room. Everything's in one big room. So communication is really easy. And the start, the, how we started uh, recording, like uh, Robin had done some demos of the songs, but he had done them in, in Garage Band and they were just kind of like um, just him like showcasing the ideas for the songs, but we needed to start recording from scratch. Um, so that was a really good place to do that because we were in the same room and it was very easy to move quickly between songs and just put ideas down so we could start building. Yeah. And is, is that where you had the children's choir, which included Hamilton Lighthouser from the Walkman's kids? We did. No, that's actually, that happened during lockdown. So we received those files from him. Oh, oh, okay, okay, he organized. Okay, so I get the sense that this whole album was organized very casually. Uh, like, it's not like you were hiring professional choirs and session musicians. It was all like, it seems to be like, coger el teléfono, you know, get the phone and get friends to participate. It, no? it was uh, casual, but it was all like, um, not so casual. Like, um, Robin knew exactly what he wanted from the beginning. Like he actually, before we started recording, he sent me a very long email, um, like pointing out what he was, what he wanted to achieve. Like he had the sequencing of the songs. He knew which song we go into each other and how, um, which is kind of unusual. It happens sometimes, but it's, it's not the norm. Um, there's certain things that were more casual, like the the main song the kids are on, which is Young Man's Game, that's the last song that he wrote. And that's a song that he didn't have when we started recording. Like from the beginning of the recording, it was like, we're missing song nine. Like from the beginning, it's like, there needs to be a song nine. And he had not figured out what that was yet. So that was the last one. And then once the kids um, sang on that song, um, yeah, I think we got them in, in also waiting, but yeah, that was kind of like towards the end. Wow. What was the hardest song to get finished apart from song number nine? So we say, was um, there one where he recorded many versions before you found the right way that it had to sound like and ended up on the record? There were some minefields for sure. Um, sound blind was one of them. Soundblind, like there was different versions of that song. That song started being a different song and then the verse became the bridge of Soundblind and then that bridge became the verse. And yeah, that was definitely a tough one. Um, another one would be going to the Sun Road. Like the song was written, but there were like minefields with the groove of that song. There were also minefields with the groove of Hara. So I think the drums on Hara was one of the last things we did. Um, Soundline was kind of like, I think from a writing perspective, the one that he worked on the most during the process. Song nine, like we knew we were missing song nine, but I think that came around quite quickly once he got it.
Brazilian vocal of Tim Bernardes when it comes in. It's so unexpected. And oh yeah, he's amazing. I, I, I get goosebumps just from like, wow, the way it comes in is like pure honey. He, he was not even going to sing on that song, which is the funniest part. Like he was, um, um, Robin asked whether he'd be interested in doing something in Joya, quieter. Um, and basically those songs go one into each other. Like uh, the beginning of going to the sound road resolves the chord progression from Joya. So he sent him both just for him to listen to them or, he can, or just the whole album. And he really loved going to the sound road and just sent us that. Like I thought about singing this and it was like, wow, that's amazing to me. The other day we talked to Uwade Akere. This is uh -huh. this is such a nice story, the, the the way that she she's been involved in this record. And as I say, yeah. <laughs> through Instagram, it's so random. It's one of her first. It was her second time, but it's the first time working in a professional studio with a Grammy award-winning engineer mm -hmm. producer like yourself, with a global superstar in in his field. Uh, what was your impression of all this? Like when Robin said, "Yeah, I'm gonna get this girl that I found on Instagram." Were you like, "Wow"? Yeah, it was really funny because it worked out where she was in Oxford when we were in Paris. So she just kind of like came by for like an afternoon. And yeah, it, it was really nice because also like um, she she really brought something to that song. That's actually the uh, first song we had vocals on, as in final vocals on. Um, and it was funny because we were in Paris and probably was like, well, she's coming tomorrow, so shit, I have to finish the lyrics for this song. He had not, like, he had an idea of what the lyrics were, but he actually had to finish them because she was coming in. So they had to be done. Um, which sometimes is a good thing, like deadlines are a good thing to have. Yeah, totally. And, and it's so She was great. She did like literally like two vocal takes and they were wow. perfect. So it was like, um, okay, great. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Beatriz, for joining us to tell us all about these interesting things about your work on shore and other things. And I look forward to hearing more and more of your, your work. Thank you so much, Johan. Of all the musicians who played on this album, the one vocal contributor who stands out prominently and has the honor of opening the album on Wading in Waste High Water is Yuwade Akere, a Nigerian college student who came to Pecknold's attention thanks to a friend who sent him a video of her covering their song Mikonos on her Instagram. We DM'd her to see if we could get her to share her experience on working on the three songs she features on. Uwade, where in the world are you right now? Right now, I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, my hometown. 2020 is, is being a difficult year for everybody, but you've had some very wonderful things happen to you. Uh, not only have you received scholarship from 11 different universities in the U.S., <laughs> I did a bit of research. <laughs> Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. You also sing on one of the albums, uh, one of the best albums of this year so far, Fleet Fox's Shore. How, has, how have these events in your life shaped your perspective during this madness of pandemic? Well, I mean, it's been a wild year and every single day presents a new, I don't know, a new opportunity to kind of shift your perspective because I kind of went from 
being in school, I was studying abroad for a year and then I was no longer in school. I was at home finishing online and then settling into that. And then my father passed away. So I had to, you know, travel again to Nigeria after being home for like six months. But then also Shore was always in the background over the summer. Robin sent me kind of where the album was, the the rough um, mixes of the album. And I knew that it was coming out in September. And so I was looking forward to that and just having it be so successful and having everyone respond so positively to it while I'm like sitting at home trying to like get my work done for my online classes has been such a surreal experience. And I'm, I'm so glad that people enjoy it and I'm glad that they derive the same joy um, that I did and that I'm, I'm guessing Robin did from, from creating it because this is a year where everyone kind of needs, needs something to get them through. So. So the story we've been told is that someone sent Robin a video of you singing their song Mikonos on your Instagram, and he liked it so much he decided to contact you and have you sing on the new album. Now, can you remember where you were and what you were doing when you opened up your, was it, you, did you see it in a direct message? Yes, I did. I was actually in, it was last summer, I was in Greece um, because I was doing this study abroad program. I was in Athens for a month. And I just left, I think we were going on some like field excursion to look at some ancient ruins. And I had just posted the cover. And a few hours later, I saw once, once I got Wi-Fi, I saw that Robin commented and I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And everyone was like, whoa, ooh, this is insane. And then I saw a DM from him about potentially, um, you know, like recording for the album. And he was saying that he was in New York, but the problem was I wasn't going to be in New York at the time. Um, and so we just kind of had to postpone it. I was in Greece and he's like, well, I'm in New York. And so I said, well, maybe I'll be in New York at some point, but I'm studying abroad. And then it just so happened that he was recording in Paris the weekend that I got to England for my year abroad. So it, it all worked out, but it was just, again, it was so surreal because like you never expect when you're just like posting covers that the person who wrote the song is actually going to see it, but I guess that's the power of the internet. Um, and as much as social media can be annoying, it's also like incredible for those reasons. So I'm, I was like, I was thrilled. I didn't even know how it happened. And I'm so grateful for the friend that sent um, the cover to Robin. Cause I didn't even know until like months after that he told me like, Oh yeah, I sent it to him and I'm so glad that he enjoyed it. And I was like, what? I can't believe you didn't even tell me this. So yeah, it was, it was amazing. Who, who would be the favorite artist that you like covering? Ooh, favorite artist that I like covering. That's a, that's a tough question. I would say that I have always liked Fleet Foxes, but I kind of started listening to them in like, I don't know, in middle school when I like started wanting to expand my musical taste and everyone was listening to like indie artists because we all wanted to be cool and like Bonnie Vare, like we don't listen to the radio. So that was when I kind of like started, started like my journey into Fleet Foxes. And it wasn't until that cover that I really started to like go deeper into their discography. Um, and so I really, I really do enjoy, especially the songs off of Shore. I love covering them because Robin's voice is amazing, but also the melodies that he like chooses to to go with his it, they're just they're so good, and I feel like they can fit almost anyone's voice, which is why it's such a pleasure because no matter who sings the song, there's something special about the song itself. So I really love covering his songs, but I also love 
covering the strokes just because I love the strokes. So, you know, you'd like to sing what you love. So, yeah. Okay, so you were studying abroad in, in Oxford, right? Yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, you take a train ride down to Paris to record at Les Studios Saint Germain. Uh, how did how were you very nervous on that train ride? Can you describe? Can you go back to that day? Uh, do you remember things, or is it a blur now? I mean, not really, because that weekend. I mean, like I said, it was the very first weekend that I was like, in Oxford, so I was just kind of getting used to everything, and we were supposed to have like a relation <laughs> and. Like he said, I'll be in Paris this weekend or this weekend. What works for you? And at that point, I was like, uh, honestly, I don't even know. I don't know what works for me because I need to kind of get into the swing of being in school. And I, I've never you know, been in the system before. And all my friends are like, you're going to Paris? I was like, yeah, I guess so. They're like, wow. I mean, that's <laughs> like, that's kind of kind of a big thing to do in the middle of like the first week of school. Um, but I did it because why not? Um, and actually it's funny because I was supposed to fly there. There was like some, a really cheap, um, I think Ryanair flight. And then I get to Heathrow and Oxford is about two hours away by drive one and a half hours, two hours. And I get to the airport and I realize that I left my passport in my room. <laughs> <laughs> so I walk, I walk up to the baggage counter and I just stood there and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I had to drive back and get a train. Actually, I had to get two train tickets because the first one I missed, it was just, it was a mess. But I ended up getting there in decent time. Um, but it was, it was, I don't know. I just didn't even know what to expect. And the trip there, all I was listening to was Fleet Foxes, of course, to like prepare my mind. And um, it, I just felt like I was going on this magical field trip. And, uh, you know, because it was the album itself was so far from being um, released. And he said, yeah, sometime next year, um, it'll be out. So I couldn't really conceptualize what it would be like, what the whole process would be like. I only heard one or two songs during the recording day um, because I was just singing one and then the other one I was, you know, adding some vocals to. So yeah, I had no idea what it was going to turn into. And I'm glad I didn't know then because I needed to know when I ended up knowing, like now was the perfect time. So. When did you find out that the world would hear your voice before Robbins on one of the most eagerly awaited albums of the year? Um, I think... I, fa I, I think then he said that that was going to be the first song or something along those lines. But it wasn't until, honestly, this year that he kind of sent me the track list. And I was like, okay, that is the song that I sang. And that's the first song on the album. And then I kind of started like going through my mind. Like, so I'm really going to be the first voice that anyone hears on this album. And it was like the mental processes that I went through kind of getting that like concept in my, through my mind was, yeah, I, it was crazy. It's all just it's surreal. All just That's all it is. takes did you do for waiting in waste high water 
We did about, I think I did about four or five because we were kind of playing around with my, kind of my expression. Some of them were like more sleepy, I guess, and less um, alert. And we kind of like messed around with how I was going to sing the lyrics. And I think we, by the fourth or fifth time, I kind of got the balance of like slow and, and just waking up and then kind of in the second part being more alive and open. So yeah, about four or five times. Had you recorded professionally before with, with, with these engineers, with someone like Beatriz Artola? Had you had an experience like this before this? Honestly, not really. Actually, I, I recorded a song that summer. Um, Nostalgia. That I, yes, that I released in September. And it was like, it was kind of just a spur of the moment because I had, I had um, posted a cover of a Wolfpack song and Wolfpack reposted it and I got all these followers and everyone was like, we need music. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to release something. So, you know, keep people happy. So I did. Um, and that was just me. I was just by myself and it was, there was an um, audio engineer and then the some session musicians, but it was a very different experience because it was kind of a lot smaller and a lot more like a lot less collaborative, I guess. It was just kind of like, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do? Um, maybe we have an idea here or there, but it was, it was a very different experience. It all happened in like two to four hours. It can be very daunting for a lot of people. I mean, I've seen your, as I say, on Instagram, you're clearly, clearly talented and gifted. But one thing is recording cover versions in, in, the, in the safety of your bedroom and then right. posting it afterwards. And the next is uh, being, uh, you know, walking into this professional studio with this engineer who's produced all these incredible albums with like Robin Pecknold of the Fleet Foxes. Uh, how did, were you like ready from the get go or did, did you have some time to sort of, I don't know, have a lunch, have a dinner, get to bond with them before, you know, what was it like? How much I time did you have? I had a couple minutes. We just kind of like talked for a, a little while and I found out that he like I usually go to Columbia in New York and I found out that he was at Columbia and it was kind of talking about that and like musical influences and poetry and, you know, all these fun things just to kind of get into the the vibe of the studio. Um, but I wasn't really, I don't think I was nervous. Honestly, recording covers can be a little more nerve wracking than like being in a studio for me for some reason, because there's a lot more emphasis on like sounding I, I'm very critical of myself. And so I have to make sure I sound the right way. But he, this was more about like what he wanted me to sound like. And he had a very specific vision. And, and I guess that whatever I was doing aligned with it. And so I didn't really have to worry too much about like, I think I sound this way. So I'm going to redo it. But he, every time I was like, oh, did I sound, was, was that one note sharp? He was like, I think it sounded great. So I was like, oh. Perfect. I guess we're good here. <laughs> so, is it true that they recorded a couple of cover versions of your own for you to take back with you? Yeah, I was just, we were on a break and we had just eaten and I, I just kind of wanted to, I mean, like I said, the studio was gorgeous. So I, I wanted to play around. There's so many instruments in there. And I was like, this is like a candy shop for me. Um, so I just sat at the piano and I was just, you know, singing some songs and, and Beatrice was like, oh, do you want, or Robin asked if she could, you know, kind of set up so I could record a little cover. So I did. I ended up doing 
Golden Slumbers by the Beatles. And like after the, after the um, session, he sent it to me. I was like, this is the, the best part of the day. And I was like, thank you. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was so much fun. Can't divide what's memory and what's dream. After the recording session, one of my friends was studying abroad in Paris at the time. So we walked to the Louvre together and like looked at the Eiffel Tower. And I absolutely love the Ratatouille main theme. It's one of my favorite songs, favorite pieces of all time. And so I was playing that while like watching the Eiffel Tower and like there were little rats like scampering across the sidewalk. So that was, that was like the ideal experience for me. So I got everything I wanted out of it. Best of luck to you, Iwade. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the music. And I am lo- I'm so looking forward to hearing more of you in the coming months. I know we're going to be hearing a lot more from you. Uh, I, can, I can sense it and I'm very happy for it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're an incredible interviewer. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Don't make me blush. Don't, don't. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Uh, this was our introduction to uh, Young New Talent. I think we're going to talk about some more next week, so make sure you tune in then to the weekly review. See ya. Bye. You're listening, You're listening to, to Radio Primavera Sound. RPS.